calling this one body, one mission, one gospel. Just had to check. One body, one mission, one gospel. And I hope that after this morning that will become clear as to why. When we kind of think of titling a series, we're looking for kind of the main point perhaps of the text or the main thread or, or really what we feel God is, is speaking to us through it, which is often what the author is attend, intending to communicate as well. And of course, with a letter as long as 1 Corinthians, there's a lot in there. But as a, in terms of a common thread is Paul's emphasis on one body, one mission and one gospel. And so this morning, my task is to uh, create a context for the letter, to ground it in its context, to kind of put Corinth on the map for us, and as well as to explain a little bit more about why Paul wrote this letter, and so that as we read through these chapters, and there's some difficult stuff, there's some um, uh, troubling situations that were happening in the church in Corinth that Paul wants to address, what, what's the context behind that? And what's the, what's the nature of the cause of the crisis that has caused Paul to write this letter? And then finally, we're going to look at, the, at what I'm calling kind of Paul's counterattack, as it were, his, his response to the crisis. What's he going to say and do uh, in response so uh, I have got three points, and I've named them because I had time this week to think of alliterative titles. Sometimes alliterative titles just land in my lap. So I've got the Corinthian context, the Corinthian crisis, and the Christ-centered counterattack. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, friends. I live for that moment. <laughs> if you don't like alliteration, you're going to struggle this morning. Um, brilliant. Let's read the text. We're actually going to read the first 17 verses of 1 Corinthians. So if you've got it in your Bibles, you can follow along, or it's in the ESV, I think, up on the screen behind us. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you is saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Wonderful. Can I just take a moment to pray for us as we look at this uh, portion of scripture? Lord God, we thank you for your words. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, it speaks to us of truths that are wonderful and help to put cement in our souls, Lord, and give us a foundation when the winds buffet us and the storms rage, Lord, we trust in you for your promises as we read in Scripture. Lord, I pray this morning, would you cause us to be uh, united in you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. Corinth is a Greek city. It's, I guess it's now a Roman city because the Roman Empire is very much taken over. So we'll say Greco-Roman for kind of Greekishy Romanish, but that's uh, where they are. There's a map of where Corinth is. You can see it's uh, right on a little strip of land in between mainland Greece and what's called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's gonna, gonna, I've been practicing that all week. And uh, there's a lot of words I can't say because that little strip of land is called the Corinthian, the Ismuth of Corinth, or the Corinthian Ismuth, or Ithmus. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. And an Ismuth is exactly what it looks like, a strip of land in between two chunks of land with water coming up. And so Corinth was strategically placed right there on that strip of land. So if you wanted to get from mainland Greece to this peninsula, you had to go through Corinth. But more importantly, if you wanted to get from one end of the Roman Empire, say Rome, and you wanted to get to the other end of the Roman Empire, to the east, Turkey, Jerusalem, the Middle East, if you wanted to travel in that direction, east to west, you had to sail. They sailed everywhere in those days. And you'd have to sail either around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which was treacherous. It's where all the big waves were in the stormy seas and the rocky coast there was, was, was deadly. Or you could go through that little inlet called the Gulf of Corinth, and you could park up there at Corinth, and you could go across that little red line, which was the Dolkios, or Doikos. I don't speak Greek. But it was, a, it was a road. Nowadays, if you go there, there's a, there's a canal. We have the technology. We dug a canal, make it easier. The ships can just sail on through. But they couldn't do that then. So they built this stone road that they would put these logs on, and they would wheel the ships literally over the 4.5-mile uh, uh, journey in the narrowest strip of the Isthmus to get the ships across. And that was easier and safer and quicker than going the other way. So as you can imagine, a lot of trade, a lot of merchants, a lot of money went through Corinth. You'd be pulling up to port, docking your ship, putting your boat on the list of ships to go over, and you'd be like, oh, you've got a week to wait. Only one ship at a time is getting dragged over that road. So what do you do? You go and you spend your money in the local city. They went to Corinth. So Corinth was a place of power. And actually, power is the 
first of three words that we'll see a lot in this letter. And it's because of the context, the cultural, historical, geographical context of Corinth, that these three words come up so often in the letter. And they are power, wisdom, and spirituality. This was a place of great power, political power, economic power, cultural power. Corinth was was known all over the Roman world as a place of fine pottery and amazing brass and steel. It was uh, a mecca for merchants. You know that you were going to get good stuff in the Corinthian markets. So it was a wealthy city. It was also the home to the Isthmian Games, which were hosted every two years, and they were basically second to the Olympics. Um, and so you had these great displays of might and muscle coming in to the city. It was a great place for entertainment and sport. So you've got this cultural power. And also, it was a place of great wisdom as well. Wisdom was high on the list of social kind of beliefs and identities to be a Corinthian, to be a, a Greek Roman, Greco-Roman person. Uh, we kind of know of the Greek philosophers, but they would have come through on their tour of different cities. Corinth would have been a major stop on the tour for any philosopher, any speaker. And again, in the age of uh, kind of uh, like coliseums and amphitheaters, public speaking was a main form of entertainment. So when the local, when, when uh, like a distant speaker came in or you know, the philosophers from Athens would come in and roll into town, everyone would know about it and they would flood to the amphitheater to hear the latest pearls of wisdom, the latest philosophical thoughts. And the city would be abuzz with new ideas. This was the kind of place that Corinth was. And it had its own philosopher called Diogenes who in kind of invented... Is, I think it's called cynicism, but it's not what we think of cynicism. Cynicism is, you know, basically being negative about everything. But that, that isn't what Diogenes came up with. He did invent the word cosmopolitan, which means to be a citizen of the world. So the Corinthians were the first people to say, we're not just Corinthian, we're not just Romans, we're, we're people of the world. And all that that meant, that they... Uh, in, in other words, it was an arrogance. We, we're not just, it's not just our little culture. It's not just our way of thinking. Our way of thinking is how the world should think, is essentially what they meant. And as well, spirituality was at the, was at the core of what it meant to be uh, a Corinthian or even uh, a, a kind of a Greek-speaking Roman citizen in those days. And the spirituality meant something different a lot different to how perhaps we would use it today. But Corinth was full of temples to all sorts of gods. You had Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, Isis, Serapis, Asclepius, nope, can't say that one, and loads of others. And they all had temples to honor them in Corinth. So if you were this merchant coming in off the ship, there was a place that you could go to worship your god in, in your particular way. And the biggest uh, temple was the temple to Apollo, which I think in Paul's day was not Apollo, but the, the emperor was dedicated to the emperor. Um, but there was also the temple to Aphrodite, which was famous the world over for having over a thousand um, kind of prostitute priestesses. So part of how you worshipped was um, through sex, essentially. It was a big part of what it meant. And actually, 
helps put the finger on what spirituality meant. Because in those days, the spirit was, and spirituality, to be spiritual meant to have ecstatic experiences, to have moments of kind of um, bliss or, or even pain or um, have, you know, huge, you'd physically see it and experience it. And the more weird and wild the experience, the more spiritual they were. And the body was really just a vehicle that allowed you to experience spiritual moments. The body itself was just a vessel. It didn't matter what you did to it, as long as you were serving the greater spiritual surface, uh, service that you believed in. And Diogenes, the cynic, he uh, had an interesting, him and his followers believed that the best way to live was to live like dogs. Dogs live out in the open. They don't have a home. They don't worry about clothes. They do whatever they need to do. They do it out where everyone can see it. They have no shame. And Diogenes and his uh, followers believed that this was the way to live. So they lived outside fully naked. They did everything in the nude and out in the public for everyone to see, and they didn't mind. Whether that was going to the toilet or having sex, they did it out. They, they believed that there was... Um, something to be proud of in, sh- in, in boasting in what, what other people might think of shameful, what other cultures or other contexts might look at and think, oh, gosh, no, do that in your privacy of your own home, please. They thought, no, it's, it's, it's a spiritual exercise. It's, it's a spiritual kind of one-upmanship to feel comfortable to do this out where you might be offended. I think that's helpful as we read the letter, some of the problems that Paul's going to address to remember the culture and the context that was going on, a glorying in things that other people might find distasteful, a shamelessness. It's common. And we might look at that today, power, wisdom, spirituality, and the way they define it and think that that's so far removed from us here in Gothenburg, but I don't think it is. We absolutely still hold up power and what we maybe define as power as the, as the be-all and end-all. Celebrity culture, who we're following on um, Instagram and TikTok and all of those things, the people that we're following, we call them influencers. But it's those with money and wealth. It's people in positions of significance. We hold them on a pedestal because we value it, because we think it's important. Their displays of power and the way that power is defined in our culture still affects our ways of thinking. And what Paul is going to do is redefine these words in this letter. He's going to redefine them for the Corinthians and what it meant to them but he's going to redefine it for us as well. He's going to say power doesn't look like what you think it looks like. It looks like a man dying on a cross. Chapter 2. That's what power looks like. In fact, actually, um, we'll get to it in a minute. Wisdom. As well, we look down in the West. Perhaps if you've come from a, a different continent or a different culture, maybe you've experienced this from the other side, but being... Uh, from the UK, I know what it's like to, to, to think that the way, you know, the democratic values of free speech and liberty and all of those, you look down on other countries where that doesn't seem to be the case. We've got a value, we value a certain set of beliefs that we would call wisdom, and we look down on those as at people who don't hold them. And I'm, I'll be the first person to champion free speech and fighting for equality where we see inequality. These things are good values. But we do it with all sorts of things. We look down our noses at, at, at what we might call traditional 
or old-fashioned values. We say those are so outdated, they belong to the past. And spirituality as well. In today's culture, I think the body is, is still just used as a vessel to serve a, a higher spiritual value. We might not call it spiritual, but you know, individualism, you do you, you only live once, carpe diem. We still use and abuse our bodies in the service of what we think of as more spiritual, perhaps, values. So I think as Paul, in this letter, confronts these words and these values in the Corinthian context, power, wisdom, spirituality, we do well to reflect on what our, con- our context, our culture, defines those things as, and just see where do they match up with where can we affirm our, world, our culture's worldview on things? Because we can, we absolutely can affirm the way that our culture speaks about and, and, and demonstrates the, some of these things. But where does it contrast and where does it contradict? We need to look at these things and, and see them as we go through. Uh, I'm... I just did, I don't know if this is helpful, but I went through, as I go through scripture, I'm underlining and lining up, and I looked at these three words, power, spirituality, and wisdom, and I sort of highlighted the places in just, this, just the first three chapters. Um, so chapter one on the left, here you've got two and three, and you can see in yellow, that's Paul's talking about wisdom and power and contrasting worldly wisdom, worldly power with what, with what God has revealed in Christ. And then here, Two into three is talking about specifically um, a spiritual person. What's a spiritual person look like? A real spiritual person. And contrasting that with what the Corinthians may have thought. And you can do this through the whole letter. Just take these three words, highlight every instance. And you'll see that Paul's really, really interested in redefining those terms for his readers. So that's the Corinthian context that we have Next, the Corinthian crisis. See, this, that's the, if that's the context that they have, there's a crisis, the reason that Paul is writing the letter. And we see it clearly in verse 10. Uh, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see, we're going to read on in the letter lots of different ways that this church have divided themselves up. Lots of different issues that are going to come out. Plenty of things that are going on in the church. If we, um, one of the commentaries I was reading by Andrew Wilson is fantastic, and he talks about how if he was going to write the letter to Corinth, he'd start with some of what he thinks are the bigger issues later on. You're doing what with your dad's wife? Like, what? What's going on? And you let him come into church? You'd start there. Or you're getting drunk at the communion table? This is awful. He'd start there. But Paul doesn't. He starts here with this division among you. And and, and, uh, and he appeals to them to be united. And it's because, actually, this is the biggest issue. All of these other things that we're going to read about are symptoms of the bigger problem. 
So let's, let's read then how he defines it, how he kind of sums up their problem. It's division, it's disunity, it's factionalism, it's pride. He says in verse 11, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What it boils down to is that the, the church has split themselves up into little factions, and uh, Paul is suggesting that they are, are kind of aligning themselves under different leaders. Now, it's, it is possible that Paul's using these names as hypotheticals and that perhaps they weren't actually saying, I'm, I'm in team Paul or I'm in team Peter, but that they were, there was leaders in the church. And rather than shame those leaders by naming them, he's suggesting uh, like, a, like a type of a leader, like a typological thing, because each one of those um, names we see in the rest of the New Testament gets kind of uh, called upon as, as, as representing something. So again, Andrew Wilson in his commentary calls them the spiritual, the, sophist- sorry, the spiritual, the sophisticated, the serious, and the smug. Which leader do you follow? Do you follow Paul, the spiritual one? He's all about experiences. He's the one who comes baptizing in the spirit. And Paul says of himself in chapter three that he wasn't eloquent. He didn't come with fancy words, great speeches, but rather with demonstrations of power. So is there a faction in the church that is, you know, kind of obsessed with the experiential? What does it look like to be a Christian? If I'm not like running around like a headless chicken, it's not been a good time of worship. Or do we follow Apollo, the sophisticated we read about the planting of, of Corinth in Acts 18, and it's interesting, later on in chapter 3, Paul makes the point that he planted the church and then Apollos watered, and that's exactly what happens. Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth teaching and instructing, and then he has to leave, and then Apollos comes in and he brings his teaching. And, and what Luke says of Apollos in Acts 18 is that a Jew named Apollos was a native of Alexandria, Now, Alexandria is famous for its library. It's a place of learning. So this guy was good with books. And he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately. This was a guy who could, you know, string a powerful sermon. He had the greatest PowerPoints. He was the one with the flashy um, speaking skills. He perhaps would have loved the alliterative sermon, as I do. But that's all he perhaps, great and good, powerful speaker. You can see how in, in uh, Corinth, that would have been attractive. That would have been attractive to a people that, I mean, their main form of entertainment was going and watching philosophy debates. That's the main, like that or kill people. It's like you kill people on Tuesday night in the Colosseum and then you go and you listen to someone talk about existentialism on, on Wednesday. That was entertainment in those days. So Apollos came along and he gathered, a, you know, he had a, a little following. Or are you on team Peter? And Peter represents uh, kind of the old ways, the tradition. Peter was, I mean, 
he was the one given the keys of the kingdom by Jesus. Peter is the one who um, is the first among the apostles. Is he your man? In other letters, he, he's, uh, he, he kind of sympathizes with what, what Paul calls the Judaizers. That is, people who said, okay, you've followed Jesus, but now you need to add on you know, the Old Testament laws. You need to start eating kosher. You need to get circumcised. You need to start obeying the Old Testament laws if you want to be a real believer, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to take it to the next level. And although Peter himself doesn't obviously teach that, he kind of could have represented that group of people. Serious. They take, the, they take the Bible seriously. They're the Bible people. Or do you follow Jesus? Top Trumps. Have you ever played Top Trumps? Top Trumps is the game. You've got little cards. And uh, you, when I was a kid, I had football Top Trumps, which was meaningless to me because I don't follow football in any way. But they have like five criteria, and they each have a different number, and you play. You, you know, you play... I'm looking, no one knows what Top Trumps is. Hands up if you know what Top Trumps is, and I'll stop explaining. I mean, okay, that's your homework, please Google it. But having Top Trumps, Jesus was the toppest Trump. He, 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 he's on his criteria, you play the Jesus card, you've won, right? Peter, Paul, Apollos, I follow Jesus. Thank you very much. It was the smug. Ultimately, the Corinthians boasting in their party leaders is really boasting about themselves. It wasn't so much that they thought Apollos was great, but that they thought they were great for following him. Do you see that? Paul isn't saying it's wrong to like Apollos' teaching. And of course, everyone should be in the Jesus camp. But they weren't doing that. They just had pride in themselves for being so smart, so clever, so spiritual, so wise, so powerful. They were dividing off based on pride. So what's Paul going to do? What's Paul going to do about it? How is he going to address this problem of division caused by their pride? Well, it's a Christ-centered counterattack. Um, he, he's going to counter this crisis by pointing to Jesus. And in fact, he's already done it. He's already done it from the beginning, from verse 2. If you go back and look at verse 2 and read what Paul says, it's, it's fascinating. It's so different to how Paul opens up his other letters. Often he's like, hi, it's me, Paul, called to be an apostle to the church in Philippi. Grace to you and peace. Here, he goes out of his way to lay it on thick. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, Paul's got this, uh, I, I use this illustration because it could be helpful. Paul, we would look at the situation in Corinth. I think if we went there, you'd just walk in and you'd walk back out. This, these guys, this isn't great. This is a bad situation that's going on. And obviously, Paul's exasperated as he reads, as he hears the reports coming back from Chloe's people. And he writes into it. But Paul's got a bigger picture 
view. He's got, he's got a, a, a way of looking at the world that's different to us. It's a little bit like a magic eye picture. If you've ever seen magic eye, luckily I've got a picture of this to show you. So if you didn't grow up in the 90s, um, you might know what they are. Um, have you ever seen this before? Not this particular one. Oh, Linus. Magic eye pictures, right? They look like a mess, but if you can squint your eyes and go cross-eyed a little bit, and you do something special with your eyes, a 3D picture appears. Is anyone able to do it for this? And you can, at any point, raise your hand and tell me what you can see. I have the ability to do this, so I find them fascinating, because I can do them really quickly. And often, it's normally dolphins in a magic eye picture. Dolphins, sometimes it's a UFO or a unicorn or something. Uh, but this one, any, anyone? Okay, I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it for you guys. going to leave that hanging. Paul can see past the mess of the Corinthian church to the bigger picture of, of who they are in Christ, of who these broken, fallen people with all their pride, all their factions, all their fighting, he can see who they are and their reality of their identity in Christ. They're not a church they're not like the Corinthian church, a church in Corinth. They're the church of God that happens to be in Corinth. They're united and sanctified, made holy in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, as we read on, it says, called to be saints. Actually, apparently the word to be isn't there. So it's really, you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's made holy and called holy together. So made holy and called holy together, despite the failings, despite the, the sin, despite the problems, despite all of the mess that you're in, this is who you are. And you're like that with everyone else who calls upon the name of the Lord. If you call upon the name of the Lord, your identity is made holy and called holy in Christ Jesus. And notice, did you notice as I was reading it, how many times he says the name Jesus, you almost trip over it. I've read it so many times this week, I find it hard to say this um, chunk of scripture out loud. The first nine verses, he uses the word Christ nine times. It's every verse. I don't know if you've got that up. It's, it's all over there. Paul's trying to make a point here. It's all about Jesus. What are you doing talking about Apollos, Cephas, Paul? You're crazy. It's all about Jesus, and we won't go there because it's the next chapter, the whole next chapter, chapter two, is about the cross of Christ and how it removes the grounds for boasting. It removes pride. If you know and understand and have at your center in your heart the cross of Christ and all that Jesus has done for you, you cannot boast in yourself. You can't boast in how clever you are that you've aligned yourself with Apollos. You can't boast in how awesome and powerful you are because you're seeing miracles like what Paul saw. And what Paul does is this first unit of the letter goes up until chapter 3, and Paul ends chapter 3 by circling back to what we've been talking about. He says, so, so to be clear, chapter 1 He's kind of laying the groundworks for the big problem, it's pride, that's then going to find itself coming out with all sorts of other issues, sexual immorality, drunkenness at communion, um, kind of jostling for the microphone in times of worship. No, it's my turn to speak. No, I've got a word from God. 
pipe down, you've spoken too long. It's all of these things that are happening, disorderly worship that are going on. And Paul's saying at the outset, pride's the issue. You need to remember who you are in Jesus. Chapter two, and you need to know what the cross of Christ means and how it's gonna redefine power. It's gonna redefine wisdom. These things you think are so important, you've got it wrong. They are important, but not defined the way your culture defines them, not defined the way you define them, but defined the way God does. Chapter three and verse 21 to 23 says this. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. When we think of our inheritance as small, Andrew Wilson says in his wonderful commentary, when we think of our inheritance as small, and insignificant, we squabble like toddlers over every last bit. But when we lift up our eyes and see how much is ours in Christ, our tribal allegiances fade into the background. Let me read that again. When we think of our inheritance as small and insignificant, all we've got is a little bit, we've just got a little portion, of course we're going to fight over it. Alma's obsessed with acorns at the moment. She's got pockets full of acorns, stuffed to the gunnels full of acorns. What do you think she does if Harry picks up a single acorn? Screams, runs, grabs it. She's got acorns coming out of every pocket. It's crazy. When we think our inheritance is small and insignificant, we squabble like toddlers over every last bit. But when we lift up our eyes and see how much is ours in Christ, our tribal allegiances fade into the background. They don't matter. Everything is yours, Paul says. All is yours. The world in life, in death, or in present, or in future, is all yours. You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Proud ambition is completely unnecessary because of who we are in Christ. Followers of Jesus have nothing to prove. So as we kind of close this morning, we think as the rest of this chapter goes, as the rest of this book flows, and we see Paul crafting these arguments. He's trying to to bring this disparate people, oh, like a bit like a patchwork quilt. The Baileys would be happy that I'm using it. I asked them for this on. This is the, the Baileys, lovely patchwork quilt. Isn't that beautiful? And you know a patchwork quilt is made of lots of different parts sewn together to make something bigger and better, to make something greater than the sum of its parts. And what's amazing is that the church of God is made up of parts like you and me, that it's made up of parts like the Corinthians, it's made up of broken people. That's the point. And we'll see it's, it's in our brokenness, it's in our weakness that we, the cross of Christ gains its power. It, it, it's in our weakness, in our brokenness, as we, in verse 2, call on the name of the Lord because we have to. 
because it's all from him. Everything we need in life and in death comes from Jesus, through Jesus, and as we call upon his name. So in doing that, in, in being people who call on the name of the Lord and truly look at our life and all that's in it, all of the good and, and all of the bad, and see it as part of a bigger picture, we, we follow one Lord Jesus through one perfect gospel, the good news, and we realize that we're empowered by one spirit and united in one mission gives us the power to, one, stay united together as a local expression of church and also to unite with other churches and other groups of Christians around this city and around the nations who look different to us. You know, Paul isn't saying it's, we can't have different expressions of Christianity. It's absolutely fine with worshipping in different ways, absolutely fine with uh, kind of falling on different sides of different issues, as long as perhaps they're not the key ones, or definitely as long as they're not the key issues, they're not kind of the gospel, as it were. We're not talking about uh, who Jesus is and and how he's uh, saved us, but on perhaps style, historical things. We should be very quick to stand side by side with brothers and sisters of different traditions, different expressions of Christianity, and unite over what unites us. We call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been made holy by him, and we are called holy by him. The, those in every place who call on the name of the Lord, is both their Lord and ours, will be united. Can I invite the band up? I'm looking around to see. Do we have communion out? We do? Fantastic. I don't see it. It's it's a new special communion. It's great. Great. If you'd like to stand, I'm going to pray for us. And then if we take communion and then then go into a song, is that okay? Great. So what we'll do, oh, hello. Uh, we'll, we'll take communion now. If you're new to us, what we do is we have uh, a communion sort of stationed at the back. I think there's a table there. There might be a table. There's two tables at the back. So this side and this side. And what we, we do is we, we're going to take communion and we can take it on our own. We can just pray together in a small group as well. Can I encourage you if you see someone uh, kind of standing alone, maybe can go and offer and ask, would, would you like me to pray with you? Uh, we'll, we'll just take a, a small moment to do that and then uh, we'll come back and sing. Yes, Lord God, we thank you that it is in you, Lord, that we are sanctified, made holy, called holy, called the people of God. It's because you love us. It's because of the power of the cross that we come as your children. We don't bring anything to the table of ourselves, but empty hands and a heart that says we call on your name. It's you who saves. Lord, we thank you for your body broken, that we might have 
healing in this life and the next, that we might have a future hope. Lord, we thank you for your bloodshed, for the forgiveness of sins, that all our guilt, all our shame, past, present, and future is taken away by your blood at the cross. Lord, I love that you love us when we are broken, when we messed up. You loved us first. We don't come to you perfect. We don't come to you with everything all polished up and looking great. But because we're broken, we recognize our need for you. We come to the table and take of your body and your blood. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. So the table is at the back. We can take communion. We'll take a few minutes to do that. And then the band will lead us in a song.